2: Thanks for listening to this Institute of Art and Ideas podcast, bringing you philosophy for our times. Here at the IAI, we're committed to taking philosophy out of dusty books and lecture halls and into the heart of public life. If you enjoy this debate and want to carry on the discussion or watch over a thousand more debates and talks on all the latest issues in philosophy, science, politics and arts, visit iai.tv. Remember to subscribe and review on iTunes.
0: What future are we heading towards, and do we really want to go there? The whole idea of human enhancement has long been confined to the realm of sci-fi, but with advances in everything from genetic engineering to robotics, it's now becoming very much a reality, or at least a potential future reality. The question is, should we be embracing these advances wholeheartedly, or do we perhaps have cause for concern too? Joining me to discuss these issues, we have Anders Sandberg. He's a philosopher from the Future of Humanity Institute at Oxford University. Richard Morgan, sci-fi writer, winner of the Arthur C. C. Clarke Award, uh, whose books include Broken Angels, The Steel Remains, and many others. And we have Nikki Ashwell. She's product manager at trend and forecasting company WGSN. And she's also the UK's first user of the Be Bionic Small, which is a rather advanced bionic prosthetic hand. Now, before we get into uh, some of the more controversial issues on this topic, I just wanted you all to outline your first thoughts in no more than three minutes uh, to the question, where will technology lead the human race? So, Anders, I think we'll start with you. Where will technology lead the human race?
3: So the standard trick when you're interested in the future is typically to try to look at the past and make some extrapolation from that. And there we can say that humans are a kind of unusual species. We're unusually common for a large mammal. We're found in all the parts of Earth's uh, biosphere and we have created a very weird ecological niche. And the reason for this is, of course, that we are an intelligent, communicative, technological species. When our ancestors, our shared ancestors with the chimpanzees about seven million years ago, diverged, those original uh, ancestors lived roughly like the chimps do today, and the chimps have continued this. Except that the forests they're living in have get, gotten rather small, and there are metal birds in the sky, and the predators uh, have uh, gotten rather scarce, and there are an awful lot of hairless monkeys with sticks that go bang, that uh, are not only getting rid of the predators, but also deciding the future for chimpanzee kind. So the chimps, they can't even wonder really what went wrong, because we can't even conceptualize that. And the thing that happened was, of course, we humans are pretty good at not just coming up with clever solutions to problems, but to communicate them to others, so it's retained in our culture, and quite often convert that to technology, whether that is a napped piece of flint or a plow, so we can change the ecosystem, or a bionic hand. So our kind of survival trick is very much based on our ability to change our environment. Now, the interesting part here is uh, since technology is cumulative, it generally tends to make us more capable of doing that. And recently, we become capable of modifying ourselves. And again, most of these enhancements and improvements are relatively modest, we would say. We don't really recognize just how awesome vaccination is, just how fantastic the modern biotechnology underlying our healthcare system is. And that is allowing us to plan for long lifespans and we're thinking about life in a very different way. So if we continue this, uh, we should expect that in the future we're going to be even more rich, uh, (coughs) both in a wealth perspective, but also in the sense of having amassed control of more of the world, but also more capable of modifying ourselves. And uh, that, of course, leads to all sorts of interesting uh, problems, because even though we're super successful as a species on this planet, We also have a bit of trouble with what we've done to the climate and species diversity and those nuclear warheads sitting around in silos. We haven't always been very wise with these technologies, but we're certainly getting more capable of using them. But on the positive side, we're also getting increasingly good at coordinating and uh, jointly doing things. We're still not there yet, and there might be some rather interesting and dangerous hiccups on the way there. But my guess is that we humans are a technological species and we're co-evolving with our technology. The real question is, of course, if we can eventually uh, become totally technological or whether we create technology that can evolve without us.
0: And I'm sure we'll hear more about that later. Richard, what's your take on this? Where where will technology lead us?
3: I make
4: a living from writing science fiction, which is very often described in the sort of critical uh, media as dystopian. Uh, I, I would take issue with that a bit, but yes, fundamentally, there's not a lot of money in telling stories about futures in which everyone's really happy and just sits around enjoying themselves. Uh, you know, you can't go very far with that. Um, so, yeah, my my outlook professionally has tended to be, oh my God, look at this mess! You know, how could it how can it get worse? Um, that said, I'm a qualified optimist. I, I think the point is, uh, yes, we we're a technological species, and we're wedded to our technology and always have been. I don't think we can really do anything about that. I was on a panel earlier today where there seemed to be some talk of kind, to, you know, that we would have to step away from it in some way. Um, and I don't think you can do that. We are the problem, really, uh, not the technology. And we do have a tendency to misuse it. But I think what's very, what's very uh, encouraging is that along with our technological prowess and along with our intercommunication, and I think especially related to our intercommunication, we're also gaining an enormous amount of self-knowledge. Uh, we're learning, even in, even in my lifetime, Okay, that's a bit longer than you know, I like to think about, but still, it's a relatively short space of time. Even in my lifetime, the, the, the extent to which we better understand human genetics, uh, how that drives our behavior, to what extent, how we interact with other human beings, the, 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 the dynamics of social interaction, the dynamics of, of, um, of how societies are built, the dynamics of government, how, how, we, how we govern our societies, all of this is subject to a massive amount of scrutiny and as a result is also subject to a massive amount of, of advance. And I think, ultimately, I'm optimistic because I think we will get a handle on these things. Uh, we, we will start to see how we can, uh, I said in a previous thing, get a judo hold on our worst tendencies, if you like. You know, we know that we behave badly in this particular fashion, and we know that if we get our hands on the kind of, the kind of future technology that, that, that seems likely, that's going to be a big problem. How can we get a lock on ourselves so that we don't do that and we go somewhere else with it? Um, And I think our chances of doing that are getting better all the time. It's not that they're they're great, it's not that this is a a sure thing, Um, but I do feel a lot more optimistic than I would have done, say, 20 years ago. Um, I really do think uh, there's a lot wrong with the world, always has been, and probably always will be to some extent. It's easy to feel pessimistic, but I don't think think things are getting worse. I think they are getting better slowly and incrementally. And the technology is part and parcel of that change, so I'm, I'm... I think, yeah, the future is bright to that extent.
1: Uh, And Nikki? So I guess I come at this from less of an academic or theoretical or, to be honest, even well-read perspective than the other two gentlemen. Um, But I do come at it from a practical perspective, being probably the only person in the room with a bionic enhancement she looks around. (laughs) Um, And I can say that I think that we will struggle with um, the changes that technology will bring, because on a personal level, It's all very well to see these technological changes that are happening, but it's harder to actually accept them as part of your body. And I think we risk causing a greater polarity between the rich and the poor and the people that are willing to accept these changes and the people that aren't. I uh, don't know if you could imagine if I wasn't wearing this hand and it was readily available and I didn't want to accept it, would that make me more ostracised because I've had that option and I've turned it down? If I was in a wheelchair and somebody offered me a new pair of legs, but I didn't want them, what would people think of me then? So I think, you know, from that perspective, we will actually struggle and we will have this uh, continual dilemma where ethically we just don't know what to do with ourselves.
0: Great. So I wanted to start at the beginning, really, and that's to ask the question of... What is it to be human? What does being human mean? And is that changing? Perhaps,
3: Anders, you'd you'd like to start there. That's kind of a classic (laughs) philosophy question. Uh, It's a great thing to write an essay about because you can always find somebody to disagree with. Uh, And uh, there have been, of course, a long tradition of trying to define it well. Uh, I'm kind of a transhumanist. I think it's actually a good thing to enhance humans. And quite a lot of transhumanists love to cite Pico della Mirandola, one of the portal uh, figures for humanism in the Renaissance. So in his wonderful Oration on the Dignity of Man, which is very much a start of a discussion of human dignity in the modern world, uh, it's really an argument why Christians should be allowed to deal with the new high-tech things, alchemy and Kabbalah they're not just jewish things actually christians can also deal with this but he has this wonderful argument at the start where god is explaining uh, to adam that okay i created all the other animals with particular properties. fishes can uh, survive in water lions are strong and brave and you O adam have no particular properties at all except the ability to change yourself so it's up to you to become something angelic or you can mess things up and become a little more than a beast Uh, That is the core of dignity, that we can change ourselves. And I actually do think that is a fairly good definition of uh, what it means to be a human uh, being. Yes, we certainly have a lot of other properties, like uh, two eyes, two arms, most of us, uh, a certain set of genes, a certain uh, structure of a motivation system. But at the core is that we actually are pretty good at controlling ourselves. Not perfect by any (laughs) means, but we can change. You can tell a human a sentence and they will change the way they live their life forever. That doesn't work with a cat. (laughs) Uh, No other animal can completely change their life because you tell it to believe in something or that something is true. We humans can do that or come up with that sentence ourselves. And I think that is part of what it means to be a human. We are changeable beings.
0: So that ability to change ourselves, you think, is, is kind of crucial to the definition of what being a human is. Richard, what do you say to no, that? No, I think I
4: think Anders is, is, is spot on. It's, it's about our capacity to, to, to manage, if you like. Um, I mean, I, I, think th- I think there's a lot of worry, and I think p- probably most of it's... From a species point of view and from a social point of view, I think it's unnecessary, this worry. Individually, we should worry a bit because, you know, every, people fall by the wayside when, when stuff changes. But you know, the thing is, each generation comes up with this technology, whatever it is, and they're very comfortable with it because it's all they've ever known. And I I don't—I'm sorry—I'm going to repeat myself for anyone who's been in any of the other things that I was. I've been in the last couple of days. But I mean, I I had a uh, grandmother—sorry, a great-grandmother—who apparently, uh, because I never really knew her, um, was petrified of the telephone literally petrified of it she couldn't use it she didn't want to go near it it sat in the hall on the stand and she would you know skirt it because it was this thing that could bring strangers into your home invisibly you know without any control from your point of view you could not do anything about that phone would ring the guy is there what are you going to do Um, and obviously that's not an issue we have now um similarly with video games uh i'm not the generation that grew up with video games, not really. And I have a very, very real problem with good video games because I can sit there at midnight and say to my wife, I'll be up in about half an hour and I will still be there at five in the morning. Um, You know, but I'm I'm reliably informed that the generation that did grow up with the PlayStation and the Xbox just don't have that problem. They will play for a bit and then they'll just decide, right, I've had enough of this. um, so I think we kind of, we evolve our own inoculation against the dangers that, that we face. Now, as I said, at an individual level, that can still be catastrophic. I mean, you know, take drug use. You're always going to find some idiot who who drops a tab, climbs a bunch of um, stairs in a building, and decides he can fly off the top. Um, you could argue that there's evolution in action going on there. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the, that doesn't mean that, that um, hallucinogenic drugs are a bad thing per se. You know, and to say like anything else, you learn to use it, and you go, well, you know, if you think you can fly, I'm paraphrasing Bill Hicks here, if you think you can fly, start on the ground, you know, and see how you go. Um, uh, So, yes, I mean, there is no question, and Nikki's right in the sense that there is going to be, for want of a better word, future shock, you know. Certain people will shovel a a rack of software into themselves in some shape or form, and it won't work out. You know, they'll have very bad uh, psychological problems as a a result, or, or possibly even physical issues of, of uh, tissue rejection and so forth. So those things are going to happen, yes, and there are going to be casualties and all the rest of it, but I think we're very good at managing this kind of thing. We, 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 we will find a way to cope. Who, the, the rising generation, people who, for whom this is part and parcel of existence, this is not a shocking new thing, this is what I grew up with, I've had this stuff around me since I was tiny. My son, he's four years old, he went up, when, I was, when he was three, he went up to our flat-screen TV and tried to move something on the screen like that. You know? because. That's what he grew up with, you know? But that, for me, is, is almost science-fictional technology. Touchscreens, they're what, 10 years old? Something like that. Um, so I've completely lost the thread of where I was going, but I think what I'm trying to say is that we should worry in the sense that we should worry about fast cars having sufficient crumple zones and seatbelts. But beyond that, no-one's saying, you know, Ooh, cars, they're just getting faster and faster, and this is going to be this massive catastrophe in which everybody crashes at the same time. No, not really, you know. Some people will die in car crashes, uh, you know, sometimes because they're idiots and they're driving the car badly and too fast, sometimes through no fault of their own. But as, you know, as a species, we're managing cars quite well.
0: So it sounds like you you almost think this uh, experimentation is part of being human and, you know, with the failures that
1: will come along the way. Nikki, I I want to hear your perspective on this. So as these guys say, I think to be human is to be explorative and adventurous and to adapt but also it's to be varied. So uh, one thing I can say is that there is somebody else in the world with a hand exactly like mine, and I don't think anyone else can say that. So (laughs) just thinking about the different types of technology and what we can implement, if we start to all wear bionic hands, then we all have the same hand, and we take away something that is very crucial to us being humans, which is that we are all different. So how do we... We need to make sure that we maintain that identity and that being able to be our own unique people and we don't become some sort of uh clones, which is a definitely a very extreme ideal, but not something, you know, as a, as a concept, I think we can all agree that we don't want that. So, how do we let technology adapt our bodies and how do we become enhanced by technology, but without becoming identical?
3: and there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level.
0: So the definition of a human has to include room for variation. And do you consider your hand to be human or?
1: No, it's become part of me in the sense that it's a possession that I care a lot about. And at times I've had, you know, negative reactions if somebody's touched it when I didn't want them to, in a, possibly in a similar way to if somebody picked up my phone that I didn't know so in a way it's become part of me but it's not human great okay so moving on to the the next theme: should we enhance ourselves Nikki
0: if I can go back to you first actually because um, obviously you're on the panel and a lot of people would think that your hand is a an enhancement Uh, first of all do you you consider it Um, I
1: think it's an adaptation for me Uh, um you could say it was an enhancement because it's enabled me to do a few things that I couldn't do before I had it. So, um, just to give you some background, I was born without my right hand, and then I got this one a year ago when I was 29, so I'd already learned how to do everything in life without it, and then I learned how to do everything in life with it, so that I had that choice. (coughs) Um, So, in that sense, it does enhance me slightly. But I would... As well as this being an enhancement that I've obviously embraced, I could never argue that we shouldn't enhance ourselves because I imagine everybody in this room already has. You know, if anybody's taken the contraceptive pill, they have made a choice and they have chosen to enhance themselves by not getting pregnant or they've been vaccinated and they've chosen to enhance themselves by not getting rabies. I don't know. (laughs) Um, So we already do things that prolong our lives and make us last longer in this world. I don't think anybody would turn around and say, actually, I don't want my great-uncle with cancer to have chemotherapy. I'd rather he just died and was, you know, part of natural selection. So there's no way I would argue that we shouldn't enhance ourselves.
3: It's actually quite interesting to try to come up with good anti-enhancement argument. So I already come up with that I'm generally on the fairly pro-enhancement side, which is, of course, kind of fun in the philosophy department because one of the main things we do in philosophy department is uh, to try try to hack each other's views into shreds. (laughs) That's what a philosophy seminar is about. Blood should be flowing. Uh, But generally, the anti-enhancement argument, I think, Many of the biggest and widest arguments don't work. So back in 2000, Francis Fukuyama, who's famous for having written a number of books that are actually rather wrong, and wrong in interesting ways, wrote Our Post-Human Future, which was a general broadside against enhancement. Essentially, any argument against enhancement you can imagine is in there. I think he's coming from a fairly conservative point of view. Deep down, he has got a different view on human nature. He thinks there's something essential that we might lose if we modify ourselves, and that's the real reason. But then he tries every other argument. Of course, the natural reaction was, hey, there is a philosopher who's kind of aligned with George W. Bush and his bioethics panel. Let's attack him. So there was a lot of pro-enhancement arguments that emerged from that. But overall, there seemed to be these kind of big universal arguments about human nature and human dignity which don't seem to work that well. Then you have interesting arguments about autonomy. If you enhance yourself, parts of your life are no longer under your control. Uh, I don't know about your arm, whether I can hack it uh, wirelessly or not, but there are certainly brain implants that have really bad firewalls and uh, you can do some very creepy things with them. Um, And, of course, if we think about designer babies, one reason we might uh, think that that is not a good thing is that we can totally imagine parents being very driven and thinking, I want to have a little Einstein that can play the piano and do well on the stock market. Of course, I'm going to push them to become that ideal child. And that would probably be a bad thing, regardless of whether any genes were modified or not, because that's just bad parenting. Uh, then you have the interesting issues which I think are much more popular here in Europe. What about equality? Who can afford to be enhanced? And what are the social uh, forces attached to that? If my boss wants me to take uh, a stimulants like modafinil to work harder and better and longer at uh, my job, how can I resist him? Can he p- actually push me to that? Uh, uh, do I have a right to say no, I want to be unenhanced? Personally, I certainly believe that.
0: So you do obviously at least fundamentally pro the idea of enhancement, but does that mean that you're for any kind of enhancement? Surely there's some kind of limits? Surely there's a line to be drawn?
4: As soon as it's something to do with the future, we suddenly we do seem to, to suddenly absolutize it, you know, in the sense that... Because I think the one about competitive babies is very interesting because the problem will be, yeah, designer babies, make them smart, make them mentally strong, you know, do, there's this idea argument that there's a genetic basis for grit, and, you know, jury's out on that, but still, do you make your kids give them more grit, give them, you know, these abilities and things? And, of course, the problem will be, yes, if I don't, I put them at a disadvantage against all the other people who will. But the thing is, that's an argument that's still going on now. You know, do I put my children into a private school? Um, do I move so that I'm in the catchment area for a better school? So it's not that these are new moral questions. They're just they're the same old human questions just being framed in a new way. And similarly, we, I mean, you know, for me, the issue of, you know, do i put my kid do i move so that i can put my kids into a better school well you know personally the answer is yes you do if you possibly can but the larger answer is and it is the duty of any civilized society to make sure that you don't have to that by definition all our children have the chance to go to a a good safe school that will gift them ready and get them ready for life similarly with with you know genetic enhancement in in embryos it needs to be it needs to be looked at it needs to be um, legislated, and we need to find a way to make sure that, that, that it, it works as a common good. But there's nothing new about that. You know, that's the same fight that has been on, you know, since we more or less since we came down out of the trees. It's 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 our, one of the greatest technologies we have that is is very rarely referred to as a technology. It's law. You know, the idea that we ha- we make up a bunch of stuff. We just make it up, and then we say, no, no, you have to follow these these guidelines because if you don't, then bad things will happen to you. Um, so again, I, my sense of it is, don't be scared of this, because, yeah, it looks scary from where we're standing, but the people who actually deal with it, the legislators, the kids who grow up and become lawyers uh, and have to do the work to create the laws that will govern this stuff, the people who will go into government and will, will set up the bodies that, that end up um, regulating this, they'll be fine, because for them it's just going to be, that's, that's what we got, that's
3: what we've got to work with. The real problem could be that we could get so rapid the scientific change that we actually don't have the time to construct the social institution, because it takes a while. Just think about the introduction of cell phones and how long it took us to figure out when is it appropriate to talk on the cell phone. And it took us a while, but we kind of hashed out uh, some rules for that. Uh, and this happens for almost any technology. It takes between 10 and 20 years before we're really good at it. When people introduced uh, PCs in offices, for example, in the 80s, Economists were astounded that productivity didn't go up. It turned out that this productivity paradox was kind of resolved in the late 90s when productivity started going up because at that point you had a new generation who actually figured out how to run an office with PCs and networks in it. The problem might of course be if we invent enough new stuff, radical new stuff, that it happens faster than we actually create our social norms. Then we might be st- uh, in a situation of constant future shock where our dear regulators are kind of making regulations based on technology that was 20 years old and that actually doesn't apply to the current. We've been
0: speaking quite in the abstracts, but I want to bring it back to a bit more of what we can actually expect to see in the new future. Richard, it's your job to make up yeah, the near yeah, futures, yeah. so let's start with you. What, what does the near future actually hold?
4: Um, so I think you're going to see a lot of gene therapy, I think you're going to see people just, d- certain diseases just being taken out of the equation, basically. Susceptibility to certain things like MS um, are just going to be fixed. Uh, and you, you'll do this as a routine thing when you get pregnant. The whole sort of cyborg thing I'm less convinced of because I think that the way our technology is moving, it's moving to a place where the organic and the inorganic are going to start to, to, to meld, that you'll, you won't actually be able to see the the, the join. Machines will get so small they may as well be organic, and organic tech is going to get so good we can actually make machines from organic material. Uh, so, I think in that sense, you're going to see uh, what, what Nikki mentioned. In fact, that again, gene therapy would mean oh, look, this child looks as if it's going to be born with a, with a limb missing, so we fix that right now before, before the embryo is grown. I so say an ability to engineer tiny little machines that will actually create an arm for you. You know, so you'll have the, the machines that build the bone and then the other machines that lay the, layer the muscle onto the bone. Those, when I say bone and muscle, they may not be what we understand as bone and muscle. They will probably be some other textured thing that's, that's much stronger and more resilient than the bone and muscle we make. But its roots will be in the organic because the truth of the matter is we, we've, we are, we've been test bedded as a species for millions of years. You know, and most, of our, most of our biotech, our existing biotech, is really good because it's had so long to be tested. You know, millions upon millions of generations of, of living things have taken their DNA through the testing system and we've emerged, we're the, we the end result of that.
1: So how do you, how do
0: you think see things
1: going? Um, what I do think is going to happen is we'll see more people getting excited about things like LED implants or microchip implants in their skin, which basically mean that instead of using your, instead of using Apple Pay on your phone, you're using Apple Pay in your wrist. You know, those kind of things which at first seem slightly intrusive to your body, but actually, as soon as you start to use them, you realize how convenient they are. And that kind of, ad- our acceptance of those things just becomes much easier.
0: Um, and as you're from the Future of Humanity Institute, so I expect you to have a very good answer for this. Tell us what the future
3: holds. Some cultures are going to try the most interesting fields. My friend Todd, implanted a magnet in his finger. He can sense magnetic fields. Now, is that good for anything? Is
0: that, is that really
2: <laughs> an answer? Yeah.
3: Exactly. Yeah. And the interesting thing is, about half of uh, people would say, that, uh, What's the use? And there is very little practical use of it. But the other half of people say, Cool, you can sense the magnetic sector of reality. So it's really about exploring. Maybe there are beautiful magnetic fields out there. We can't know unless we experience it. So, Todd is kind of uh, a pioneer charting this domain. And uh, so far, I haven't heard uh, about any beautiful magnetic fields, but a lot of interesting findings in made. But we need people to kind of pursue these ones. But this generally requires a bit of idiosyncratic individual hacking. That's not the things that build the safe general uh, things that everybody wants to get. The Apple iPhone requires a big design team that is, uh, know what they're doing. Although Apple originated from people hacking around with the homebrew computer kits in Silicon Valley in the 70s. So I think we're going to have the same thing. Right now we're kind of in early 70s. You need an engineering degree or ideally be a crazy doctor in order to do this enhancement experience. Over the next 10 years we're going to see a few startup companies. Some of them are going to do well. uh, And then some of them are going to be the new Apples and the Microsofts of biotechnology And later on, we get the Google of biotechnology, whatever that is.
0: Great. I'm going to have to stop us there, I'm afraid. But thanks very much for
2: joining us. Thanks for listening to this Institute of Art and Ideas podcast, bringing you philosophy for our times. Here at the IAI, we're committed to taking philosophy out of dusty books and lecture halls and into the heart of public life. If you enjoy this debate and want to carry on the discussion, or watch over a thousand more debates and talks on all the latest issues in philosophy, science, politics, and arts, visit IAI.tv. Remember to subscribe and review on iTunes. Let's jump into Pepper's world of play.
0: Look for spring flowers. Hunt for muddy puddles and bravely explore
4: exciting places with Pepper play sets. Pepper Pig, inspiring kid confidence.